Okay, well welcome again everyone uh, here today on this nice, cool, windy Sunday morning uh, on the third Sunday in Advent. Um, I want to take us back a few years uh, to the 1950s for a moment. If you remember uh, 1950s, if you were into wildlife biology, you would know that that was the time in Yellowstone Park when they decided to do a culling uh, which is just a big killing of wolves. And the reason they did that, of course, is because the wolves, the population had gotten huge, and the wolves did not know the exact U.S. government-defined line between park and ranch, and they would wander off into ranches and eat a cow occasionally. And so they decided the solution was to kill all the wolves. So they went out and they just nailed, they got rid of every gosh darn wolf in Yellowstone. Wolf-free zone. And, uh, well, there were some interesting things that happened then, once the wolves were gone. Uh, the first thing is that all the animals that they would normally eat, their populations exploded. Uh, the bison population went up. The elk population went up. And, um, and, they, and they were absolutely huge. I remember going through Yellowstone as a kid. It was 1985. I remember driving through, man, you could, you could have shook a stick and hit a bison. They were just absolutely everywhere. Uh, every road, I mean, you'd have to stop your car because they'd just go running through. And then you always would see these people who would do really genius things, like get really close to a bison to get a picture. Or I remember this group of people, they had kind of trapped a bison on a cliff, and they were all coming together to get a picture of it. And I'm like, this doesn't end well. You don't corner an animal on the edge of a cliff. Uh, I, I didn't see how it ended. We kept going, but I mean, they were everywhere. Um, but there were some problems that arose. Uh, the first was that uh, the trees started thinning and disappearing because there were so many bison, so many elk, they were eating the saplings. And so the aspen weren't coming up. The pines weren't replicating uh, very much. There was erosion in places from overeating of the grass. and. The bison were getting fat and weak, uh, and they actually measured this. The biologists went out there and measured it, and they, they show videos of these bison just sitting there by the creek sit all day long, not moving, not running, just chewing grass like they were domestic cows. Um, and they found that they were actually getting less healthy. Uh, there, were, there was more diseases, they were more sickly, and because no one was eating them. Uh, there was no one trying to eat them, so no one trying to eat them, why bother? Uh, well. In 1989, then, they decided to bring the wolves back, that they needed to do restore the ecosystem, so they brought in a whole bunch of them, uh, and they let these wolves out to see what would happen. And Well, you could imagine what happened is that the bison and the elk had to learn to run really fast. And, uh, and then suddenly there was a huge drop in bison numbers. And with that, some of the saplings started coming back, and the aspens started coming back, and the pines were coming back, and the diseases in the bison went down because now there's lots of stuff eating them. And uh, the wolves would go, you know, and how they, they do, they pick off the sick ones and the small ones or the fat ones that can't run. And so the park got restored to a more natural balance. Uh, but it's not the kind of balance that you would call a peaceful balance. Uh, it might look like that if you're a tourist driving through, 
But when you stop looking at the way the sun hits the geyser at sunset, which is super cool, if you look underneath it all, it was what biologists would call a landscape of fear. Every animal lives every second in fear of death. The predator is afraid of starving. You know, the mother wolf is afraid that her cubs might get trampled. Uh, the elk and the bison live in fear of the wolves. The whole environment is in fear. Every species sleeping with one eye open, watching behind their back. It's a cruel world, the landscape of fear. If you're not born strong enough, or fast enough, or aggressive enough, you get eaten, or you starve. And no matter how much it may look like a peaceful environment from the outside, uh, underneath it all, everything is about violence. Everything's either eat, they're fighting to eat each other, they're fighting over mating rights. You know, the, the male bison will bash each other's heads in, and I mean this literally, they bash each other's heads, that's how they decide. And, uh, uh, and the winners, of course, even if you're the winner and you get to be the top bison, you're only the winner until as long as you can hold off all the others who are waiting for the moment you get weak and then they'll bash your head in. So the alpha male is only the alpha until he can, as long as he can beat up all the others. Nobody in a landscape of fear is ever permanently safe. This is how it works. Now, we as humans, we know what the landscape of fear is like because we've all been there. We call it high school. <laughs> right? There are winners of trophies and there are those who don't win. There are captains of the team and there are bench warmers. There are the popular and the unpopular, the bullies and the bullied. It is a landscape of fear. And those who are born too different, looking or not looking the right way, are not athletic enough or not charming enough, or, or they can get bullied, pushed around, isolated, like that little, bull, little bison that gets pushed out of the herd. And I've noticed, maybe in my generation, a shift in the way we approach the high school landscape of fear as adults. One, one way is the old way. I'm, I'm, I'm stereotyping it, but I'm going to call this the old school way, right? This is the one where, you know, your kid comes home and he's crying because he's been bullied and harassed by, you know, big Jimmy Anderson or whatever his name is, right? He's always a giant guy with red hair and freckles, right? Like the guy in... Um, What's the movie where he licks the stop sign? Christmas Story, yeah, right? The bully always looks like that. Um, and so he comes home crying, and he's been bullied by big Jimmy Anderson, and he comes to dad, and in the old school way, what you do is you tell him, kid, it's because you you're, too, you're too weak, and you're a pansy, and you need to learn to fight for yourself. So you give him some boxing gloves and some weights, and you say, learn to toughen up. And when you beat up Jimmy, big Jimmy Anderson, he'll leave you alone. Don't be a wuss, kid, right? And you essentially tell them it's your fault you're being bullied because you aren't good enough at violence to scare him away from bullying you. And, uh, you know, taken, uh, if you take that to the extreme, you know, you're hearing some of these dads, they're like, I'm ashamed of you being bullied. No, what? The kid just, this is genetics, you know? I, I, I remember one kid, I remember one kid, eighth grade, he had flunked, 
He was like a, one of those like early birthdays, plus he was unusually big, plus he flunked a grade. So he was six foot four and like 250 pounds in eighth grade. And this huge tank of a guy. Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I, I'm gonna just beat him up to scare him away. This is genetics, right? But this is the old school way. It's your fault if they're picking on you. Win the landscape of fear, conquer it. The other way, is what I see more now, which is you call the school and you tell them there's a bullying problem and that they need to reprimand or remove the bully and uh, that you need to teach everybody about respecting differences and being kind and that we have no room for harassment here. So what you're doing is you're remaking the landscape of fear and you're basically deciding that you're not going to have that or you're not going to play into it. And if you're someone from the old suck it up and beat them back school of thought, this whole newfangled don't bully stuff gotta drive you nuts. You know, when I was at the gym, this was back when I went to the gym, there was this one grumpy old guy. Uh, and uh, he would go around the weight room and uh, he would like try to find people to listen to. And he'd go on these sort of harangues about, oh, he had everything in the world. And I would just pretend I didn't see him and just keep back doing my doing. I did not want to get into it with this guy at all. I'm like, but you couldn't miss him. I mean, the weight room's not that big. So, uh, and he was going on. Well, one day he was going on and on about uh, uh, how today's society is making boys weak. They are making our boys weak. Now he had, he was convinced that that was part of a larger plot to take over the government so we wouldn't have strong boys to fight the new world order. He kind of took it in a weird way. But I didn't, didn't, it didn't escape me that this was a guy who liked the old way. You know, I also learned that this was a guy who was born pretty rich and buff. So the landscape of fear worked for him. And so he was just absolutely, absolutely perturbed that a whole culture was, was getting wussy like that. And our boys were being, quote, turned into girls. He did not want this accept differences stuff. Now, it's not a secret. I am not a, a fan of the landscape of fear. Uh, maybe it was because I just was not born ripped enough or rich enough or whatever. Uh, but I'm not. I never liked it. I never liked thinking that it was my job to get good at violence so that I would not be a victim of violence. You know, I never liked the idea that somehow being big and strong entitled you to be able to bully and harass people. And, uh, and I never liked the idea that sort of like, it's almost like might makes right, you know? I never bought that the landscape of fear is how we should live as human beings. You know, or that that is really a world at peace. I mean, e even when there's no open fighting, everything is still about the threat of violence. So you either have people fear you, or you know, you're making them afraid of you. And I think to myself, wow, what a miserable world. We're smart enough to put a man on the moon, but we can't figure out how to structure our society in such a way that we aren't always like threatening each other all the time? I mean, can't we find another way to live?
that doesn't involve a human landscape of fear? Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful is the messenger who announces peace. Not the messenger who announces victory or conquest or domination or control or revenge, but peace. Not the messenger who kicks butt and takes names. Not the messenger who teaches our enemies a lesson. Not the messenger who proclaims destruction on the bad guys and that our time will come. What he doesn't say matters. Because the prophet is speaking. Prophet Isaiah is speaking to people who've been in slavery, away from their home for 75 years. And they've been living under the yoke of oppression, and they've been living at the bottom of a landscape of fear. Most of them their whole lives. And I'm sure they would have loved for a messenger of destruction who would have come in and told them that they're going to turn the tables and we're going to kick butt, and we're going to take names, and we're going to rule over them the way they ruled over us. But that's not what the prophet says. God says that's not how it's going to work out. Well, he does say there is going to be destruction. That is part of it. Babylon will be destroyed. The Persians will come and do that. And the Babylonians will be dragged off as slaves by the Persians. Uh, the prophets do mention that. But it isn't the people of God who are going to do the sacking. And there will be peace, but it's not going to be through ruling over. The people of God are going to go back to their homeland. They're going to be allowed to go back. They're going to get a certain amount of home rule. They can get their own governor. Uh, but they still got to pay taxes to the empire. They're still subjects. They're still not really in charge. They don't have their own army. And they're not going to be, have anyone in fear of them. They'll be free to live their lives and worship their God, but they still ultimately answer to someone else. So the messenger who announces peace is not announcing a turning of the tables, but a world of peace where the people in this rebuilt Jerusalem, they're all going to have a little bit less money and a little bit less power, and there really aren't going to be these big divisions because everyone's going to be a little bit poorer off but it'll be a lot less oppressive. You'll all be somewhat poor and oppressed by the Persians, so you'll be at peace. This is God's peace. A world where nobody, li where no where, where nobody lives in fear, where violence and the threat of violence isn't what makes the world go round. Where nobody has to be fighting just to have their dignity and their place. Where we all have a dignity and a place under God as our king. This is a world where there aren't powers to oppress, but where we share and live together with compromising and sacrificing and giving. The peace that the prophets proclaim on the mountains. And the person who does it is beautiful. Because he's telling us that we can breathe deep and get rid of the landscape of fear. And I know it isn't easy. It goes against our nature to not prioritize ourselves and our families all above everybody else all the time. It goes against our nature to make ourselves vulnerable and compromise and share. It feels weak. And for some, there's always that voice in the back of the head saying, 
Well, you're giving up violence for peace. What if they don't? It's true. We don't live in a world of God's peace truly yet. We still live somewhat in a world of fear. But God is not giving up on announcing that this world of peace with God is the only power, is the only king, with nobody on top and nobody on the bottom, and everyone in harmony, that it's still possible. God's not giving up on that. And the words of peace are beautiful words. We may call them unrealistic, but God believes they can happen. It's what inspires me about the scriptures and about Jesus that they don't buy into the landscape of fear mentality. I always saw that. That's why I think it's easier to sometimes see Jesus if you're not the top of the pecking order. That's why Nietzsche hated Jesus. He thought he was too weak and loving. And, uh, you know, but I could always tell that with Jesus, there was a different way to live. Before Jesus, there was a debate. There was a debate, and a debate that never really ended, in a sense, about whether God's Messiah would be the new Alpha, the new King, who would rule over a landscape of fear with violence, or whether the Messiah would be the self-sacrificing loser. Well, what does the prophet say? Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals, and he shall startle the nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. The servant will not be a model, tall, dark, handsome, and rich. We know what they call on Tinder the magical golden unicorn, right? The servant of God will not be beautiful because of his face. It says his looks will be off-putting. But his words, his words will make the beauty. The words of peace, the words of God's will, the words that are so powerful to make kings stop to listen. Now, I look forward to a world without power politics, without alphas and betas and all that stuff. I look forward to that. Part of what I love about the gospel is that vision that it rejects that, that it gives a vision of a world of true peace with mutual sharing and love and compassion, giving and sacrifice and compromise and humility. It's the world, the vision of the world of the prophets, and it's the vision of the world of Jesus. Amen.